So today we are going to take our time now and turn back to the Word of God, and we're going to turn to the book of James. So open your Bibles with me to James as we work our way through this book verse by verse and sometimes word by word, looking at the topic of wisdom for living in a fallen world. This is James chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, and today just for our study we're going to look at verse 13. James chapter 3, I'll read for the context, verse 13 through 18, wisdom for living in a fallen world. The word of God says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts and do not, and do boast against, boast and lie against the truth, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One of the most obvious missing needed ingredients in our culture today is wisdom. I think all of us would agree that that practical everyday wisdom is one of those things that we are in urgent need of in our culture. The culture and the church has drifted further and further away from the truth, and as a result of that, they have drifted away from the only source of wisdom. We are living in a real serious situation of the death of wisdom in our culture. We are front row row witnesses to those who have lost their literal minds and are devoid of God and devoid of the truth and devoid of biblical wisdom as a result. Often I find myself saying, where is all the common sense gone? People don't have any common sense. Biblically speaking, common sense can be thought of as as the combination of wisdom and discretion. Wisdom would be knowing what to do. Discretion would be knowing when to do it and how to do it. But tragically, our problem is much, much worse. In order to have wisdom or even common sense, you have to start with basic knowledge, information that is accepted as truth. But today there has been a wholesale attack on the basic knowledge and basic truth. When you reach a point that you have to identify a man as a biological man, I ask the question, is there any other than a biological man? We've lost basic knowledge, basic understanding, which eliminates the hope of wisdom at all. It's impossible for any people or any person to have wisdom if they deny the fundamental facts of reality. If you walk away from Christ and you walk away from God and you walk away from the absolute truth of the word of God or just absolute truth in general, you lose all hope of having any wisdom whatsoever. And we live in a culture that has done that and we're living in the midst of it now. As John MacArthur correctly diagnosed our culture, he said we are living in a pre-Christian culture, not a post-Christian, but a a culture that is like a culture that has never been affected by the gospel or never been affected by Christ or Christianity. 
We're literally living in a pagan culture that does not accept, does not believe in absolute truth, and definitely does not accept and believe in the truth of the Word of God. Now, there's a lot of knowledge. There's lots and lots of information circulating around. Lots of facts that you have access to, more than you've ever had access to in the history of the world as far as that is concerned. But when you leave God and his word out of it, all you have is facts. You don't have wisdom. It reminds me of the passage that we go back to time and time again, and it's the passage in Romans 1. I want you to look there just for a moment, and I want to point out something about that. In Romans 1, verse 18 through 22, this is the familiar passage of Paul's really um, recollection of what's happened to humanity. It could be understood as a historic departure away from God or also an individual's departure away from God. And here we find it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the key. Who suppress the truth? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness or in their sin. In other words, they want their sin so much that they're willing to suppress the obvious truth that is in front of you. He goes on and says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they profess to be wise, but they become fools. Verse 21 has a couple of terms I would like to point out to you. In verse 21, Paul notes that they at one time knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, and they became futile. The New King James translates that word futile. The Greek word, matayo, is a word that means worthless or vain or off the right path. It has the idea in synonyms to miss the mark or to escape notice or to act thoughtlessly. All of that is embodied in that term. The word thoughts here is an important word because it's the word dialogizomai. And you hear the word logizomai, you hear the word logic. That's where we get our word logic from. But the word dia means thoroughly through. And when you put the two together, you get the word reason. And the point is, is that they literally become futile or worthless or vain in their reasoning. It doesn't mean that they can't think. Everyone thinks thoughts. We all have thoughts. But not everyone's able to reason. Not everyone has logic. Not everyone's able to properly understand truth. And that's the point here. As they leave God, as they depart from the only source of truth, they end up in a futile state of no ability to reason. He goes a little further in verse 21 and says their foolish hearts are darkened. The word foolish here is a word that means without insight or without understanding. They don't have the ability to understand and to comprehend basic truth. This word, by the way, is used over in Matthew 15, 16 when Jesus Christ was talking to his disciples and was actually correcting them for not understanding the parables. They were unable to understand without insight into practical application 
through the parables. It's also used in Romans 1.31 when it describes all of fallen man as undiscerning. It's the same Greek word, undiscerning. So he says that these are futile in their thoughts and they're foolish in their hearts, unable to understand, unable to comprehend, unable to reason. Then verse 22, they profess to be wise. That's our same word for wise in James we're going to look at. But they become fools. This is a different Greek word. Not foolish, but fools. Here in this text, it's the word that is in the verb form, but it is also from the original root of moron. It means basically someone who is not sound in mind. One lexicon says, frankly, stupid. It's the point that you have minds that are, as it goes on and tells us in Romans 1, when they're reprobate, they are useless minds. Minds that can't reason, can't understand, can't comprehend. And therefore, since you have abandoned God, abandoned the source of truth, you have no wisdom and you have become fools. That's what Paul tells us. That's where humanity has gone historically. That's where our American culture has gone today. We started down this slippery slope many years ago. Whenever many in our culture and sadly in the churches adopted and believed what Charles Darwin taught about evolution. And whenever you believe that nobody plus nothing equals everything, you are a fool. You are living in a state of complete denial of reality. That everything that exists all of a sudden appeared with no power, with no one behind it, with all the complexity that it has, and you believe that it's all here by chance? That's not even possible. Whenever you do that, you fall off the cliff of reason. You fall off the cliff of wisdom. You fall off the cliff of truth. You are on a free fall into complete, total ignorance. That's where we find ourselves today. Wisdom has been abandoned for the love of darkness. It's been abandoned for the love of sin and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, as Paul says. Erwin Lutzer wrote a couple of books in the last few years that have been really important to read, and I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to read through them. One was one that he wrote a number of years ago, When a Nation Forgets God. In that book, he said, back in the 1970s, Francis Schaeffer told us that one day we would wake up and discover that the America we once knew was gone. He said, that day's here. And it is. One does not have to be a prophet, he says, to see the dark days that are coming on the United States. There are ominous signs that our freedoms that we once assumed are now disappearing. Forces of secularism lead inevitably to totalitarian states which everyone is expected to submit. He also said in another book, We Will Not Be Silenced, which was another recent one he wrote, he said this, and I quote, The secular left does not believe that America can be fixed. They say that it must be destroyed. On the rubble of America's Judeo-Christian past, a new America will emerge, which they say will be free of poverty, racism, and white supremacy. The seculars left goal is a future in which everyone is equal in their own terms and their disparities of the past will be read only in the history books. Those who resist this utopian vision will be vilified, bullied, shamed until they admit the mistakes of the past and embrace the secular left's great hope of the future. 
Take a moment and reflect on what has happened in America in the last 20 years, even I would add the last five or 10 years. Consider the increasingly sexually explicit curriculum in the public schools. Listen to the racial, uh, the, uh, racial rhetoric that is by self-appointed social justice warriors who are committed to inflaming racial div division. And look at the new laws forcing Christian colleges to compromise their biblical stance about marriage and the surrender to the LGBTQ agenda. Who would have ever believed that the day would come when we would actually say and be told that we need to believe that men can bear children? But that's where we are. That's where we are. We should be shocked at this, but then we shouldn't be shocked. The reason why we shouldn't be shocked is because we've seen the departure of our culture away from truth. We've seen our culture depart away from the Judeo-Christian ethic. We've seen them abandon the absolutes of reality and obviously the absolutes of the word of God. So therefore, we're literally living in a cesspool, a cesspool of immorality, lawlessness, and debauchery. And frankly, folks, apart from a great work of God in revival and reformation, we're going to see these things get increasingly worse. Wisdom has been shoved out the door for a love for sin. And having been blessed like we have to live in a country for decades that has embraced the Judeo-Christian ethic, it is truly shocking just how quickly a culture can depart and go down the sewer. I must admit, I, I have been more shocked also at the lack of wisdom in the church. How quickly the church has adopted or imported the culture into the church. Where it used to be that the world was something that we avoided in the church, now we bring it into the church so that the church is less offensive to the world. Our goal primarily in many of our churches in America is to be a friend of the world. When in fact, as we'll see later on in the book of James, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And it puts the church in an awkward position of being a friend of the world and hostile to the one that it promotes, which is a sad reality. More and more churches have brought in the lies of secularism and Marxism. In an astonishing way, wisdom has been abandoned for this friendship with the world. As one author said, today we face cultural pressures that are forcing us to combine Christ with other religions and to combine Christ with the political and ideological agendas. This pressure is real. It is real on many, many churches. It's real on pastors. It's real in denominations. And sadly, more and more are caving in this fashion. The key to this caving is found in many ways in some of the historical accounts that we're all familiar with. I know that most of us have read or probably studied the historical accounts of what happened in the days of Hitler and what he did. But you may not know this, but Hitler did not discourage people from attending church. He was born into Catholicism and was baptized as a Catholic, but had long since abandoned his religion. But even with that in mind, he had no desire to stop people from attending church as long as, and here's the key, as long as they, it did not affect the way they lived or the values they held. One author went on to say about that very context, he says, in fact, he explicitly said, 
that he would not interfere with the specific doctrines of the church just as long as the churches were teaching those things that were in harmony with the good of the German people. Folks, we are here today. This is where we are. He called it positive Christianity. We might have termed it liberalism years ago. Now it's Marxism, social justice, CRT, and many other forms that have come into the church that have literally obliterated biblical wisdom. We have dumbed down our doctrine, erased the need for truth, minimized the teaching of the word of God, decentralized the pulpit in local churches, and we have caused the church to be famished as far as the word of God is concerned, and as a result of that, very little biblical wisdom. Very little biblical wisdom. The phrase that really stands out to me in this text that I just read to you about Hitler was, as long as it did not affect the way they lived or the values they held. That's the goal. Go to church all you want. Believe all you want. Just don't tell me what you believe. And don't try to make me believe what you believe. Don't evangelize. Don't talk about your morality. Don't talk about your God. Don't talk about your Christ. Don't talk about a biblical worldview. You can go to church, have your church all you want, just as long as it doesn't affect me. That's where we are. Wisdom, by the way, simply defined as this, knowledge applied. Knowledge applied. And knowledge is something you can gain and know, and all of us have a lot of knowledge. But to help you to understand a little better about what wisdom is, Knowledge would be this. You know that whenever the knob is turned to high on your stove and the burner is red, that it's hot. That's knowledge. Wisdom is you know better than to stick your hand on it. That's wisdom. A lot of people have knowledge, don't they? We know knowledge is that we see a snake and we recognize that snake as a poisonous snake. That's knowledge. But the wisdom is to know to stay away from it and not to pick it up. That's the difference. As one author said, knowledge enables us to take things apart, but wisdom enables us to put things together and and to relate them to God's truth. Wisdom was that important thing to the Jewish people that they often talked about. In fact, we have the Old Testament books that are called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, and other portions of the Old Testament are given to us as wisdom literature. And the Jews understood the importance of wisdom. In fact, their primary emphasis was wisdom, the ability to apply what God's word said. In fact, in some cases, they went a little further than they should have by creating many, many other laws around the laws of God to supposedly help you be wise in applying the word of God. Ended up in legalism and a works-based salvation. But knowledge is easy, isn't it? Well, some of you may say it's not so easy, especially if you're in school right now. But knowledge is easy. It's easy to attain. It's easy to get. You just basically need to study and look at the facts and remember the facts. You can get it through academics. You can get it through experience. You can gain knowledge. Knowledge is not a hard thing to gain. But wisdom is a total different thing. To apply what you know to everyday life and to live in such a way that God is honored and Christ is exalted and the word of God is obeyed is a different thing. To have the facts of what the word of God says and to know what scripture says is one thing. But to live it and to apply it in your daily activities is what James is talking about with biblical wisdom. To have knowledge of something does not automatically mean that you have wisdom. 
unlike the days of uh, Paul and the apostles, the Greeks exalted wisdom, but their idea of wisdom was more of the academic wisdom, that as long as you were smart and you were intelligent and you had all the facts, you were considered wise, right? It would be like getting all the experts up here and having them say something about some particular topic. They would be considered the experts, therefore they're the wise people. But biblically speaking, you may not be very smart, you may not be academic as far as a uh, person in the schools are or universities, but you can be very wise because you can have biblical knowledge actually applied in your life. Now, Proverbs chapter 3 talks about how wisdom is to be exalted and how important wisdom is. It's a worthy goal of all of us to apply and to understand how we are to have wisdom in our lives. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 13 says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who obtains discernment. For her profit, and the her refers to wisdom as a woman or she, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her produce better than fine gold. She is more precious than pearls and nothing you desire compares with her. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and glory. Her ways are pleasant. Her ways are Excuse me, in all her pathways are peace. She is the tree of life to those who seize her. Talking about wisdom. And all of, those, all of those who hold her fast are blessed. And even in Proverbs 4, and there are many other Proverbs we could read, in chapter 5 and following, it talks about wisdom and the need to get wisdom. Listen to this. Proverbs 4, 5 and following, get wisdom. Get understanding, which is also a synonym here of wisdom. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth, nor forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. That is wisdom will. Wisdom is the principal thing, it says, or the fundamental thing, or the foundational thing. Therefore, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Then the proverb says, Hear my son and receive my sayings, which is a synonym of the wisdom he's talking about. And the years of your life will be many. I have thought you, or rather I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction and do not let go. Keep her, that is wisdom, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it and do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone else fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the shining sun that shines in the brighter and perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. And they do not know and they make them stumble. My son... Give attention to my words. What words? The words of wisdom. The words of wisdom of applying the word of God to your life and living it. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and help to all of your flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. 
Put away from you the deceitful mouth and the perverse lips from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left or remove your, and remove your foot from evil. He goes on and on to talk about how you apply wisdom in the context of a fallen evil world. In our day, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to live. We need wisdom to know and to understand the culture we live in. We need wisdom to, to raise our families. We need wisdom to live with our spouses. We need wisdom to apply all the biblical principles to all and every part of life. And you know what's interesting about that is, is that when we think about this, it is the church that has the wisdom. It's the people of God who have the wisdom. Why? Because we have the truth. We know how to raise a family. Because we have the word of God that tells us. We know how to apply those things in our life. We know what marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. We understand and believe and know that abortion is murder. And we have wisdom on those things because we know what the word of God says. All the things that all the pundits and talking heads today gather together and battle back and forth and talk about whether this is right or this is wrong or this is good or this is bad. And they literally have no wisdom regarding any of these things because they have devoided, they're devoid of the truth. They're devoid of the word of God. Now, when we go back to James, this is what James is talking about. The ability to apply wisdom in your everyday life or really wisdom living in a fallen world. And just in case you don't know this, but the time that James lived was not a better time than us. In fact, they had a whole lot of immorality and a whole lot of strange beliefs and a lot of religions, just like us today. I mean, he was living in the midst of a pagan culture that had not been Christianized at all. They understood what it was, and they knew what it was to apply the things of God's word to their life. So James helps us to understand that wisdom is more than knowledge. And in fact, wisdom is the application of the word of God to your life when you live it. That's what he's talking about. It's not the first time he's talked about this. In fact, as a good teacher, he will often repeat himself, and that's exactly what James does. He repeats himself over and over again. If you remember, remember back in James 1, 4, it says, but let patience have its perfect work. This is James 1 now, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then he says, this, if anyone lacks wisdom, wisdom in what? In applying the things of God to your life, to have patience in God's work in your life. In James 1.22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one is blessed in what he does. He's basically saying wisdom is the application of the truth. Not just being a hearer, but a doer. James 1.26, if anyone is among you who thinks he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this one's religion is vain. Pure religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one unspotted from the world. Again, the application of God's word is wisdom. James 2.1, brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. The application of God's word is wisdom. James 2.14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? What's the point? Faith without works, faith without fruit, 
is not biblical faith, and any kind of faith that does have fruit is biblical wisdom. Applied. James 3.10, out of the same mouth, proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. In other words, the tongue properly corrected and controlled is biblical wisdom. And then he goes on here in our text and begins to amplify what wisdom is. And really, if you were to sum up the entire text, it is this. Knowing what God's word says and living it. That's biblical wisdom. Now, we all could go home now, right? Ah, it's raining. Let's stay inside, right, and continue on. And today I just wanted to spend a few moments on talking about verse 13. And I want to talk about the singularity of wisdom and the sense of wisdom. And next time we come together, we're going to talk about the source of wisdom. But for today, the singularity of wisdom wisdom to begin with, look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, that's an important question. Who is wise and understanding among you? He's talking to the congregation that he has there, primarily Jewish people, who would have understood the necessity of practical wisdom from the word of God. But then he asked the question, who is it that's wise? Who is the one who has wisdom? Who is the one who has understanding? The two adjectives, wise and understanding, are really synonyms here in the text. And they're only used in this uh, form here together in this text in James chapter 3. They're used that way in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 13 in the Septuagint, which talks about the needed qualifications of the judges for the tribes of Israel. It's put together again in Deuteronomy 4, 6 and Hosea 14, 9 that talks about that all followers of God should have wisdom and understanding. The word wise, by the way, is the Greek word sophos, or you probably hear the word sophia, uh, the name sophia. It basically described, as I told you, in the earlier times in classical Greek, especially of the Greek philosophers and the, uh, the vain quibblers and rhetoricians that would sit around and talk for ages about things they really didn't understand. It's kind of like what happened in Acts chapter 17, you remember, when Paul went to Mars Hill and the area of Athens there, and you had all of those that sat around all day long talking about things and had no conclusions about anything and had no real wisdom. The word sophos, though, or sophia, in the New Testament is the equivalent of the Hebrew word that has the idea of wisdom in a theocentric sense. And what I mean by that is this. It's not anthropocentric. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. Wisdom is not something we get from man. Wisdom is not something we get from the universities. Wisdom is something we get directly from God. That's the biblical sense of wisdom. Unlike our culture, what it says today, the word understanding in our text is a word we get our word epistemology from. It has the idea of thoroughly understanding something. And like I said, many understand the word wisdom and understanding here synonymously. You could look at the word wisdom as a more moral sense and the word understanding as a more intellectual sense. Both are needed. You need to thoroughly understand something, and you need to also biblically apply it morally. But James asked the question, who is it that has this wisdom? Who is it that has this understanding? And the point is, is that you can't have wisdom unless God gives it to you. It's theocentric. It's from God, as we'll see next week. It's from the source, which is from above. God specifically is the source of all wisdom. And another way to understand that is this. You can't have wisdom without truth, right? There's no possibility of having wisdom without truth. 
And you can't have truth without who? God. You can't have anything, frankly, without God. You and I wouldn't exist without God. Do you realize that your body is held together by the very laws that God created? Or you would really fall apart, apart from what God created. The entire universe is actually held together by the absolutes of physics that God created and put in place. All truth comes from God. He's the one who is truth according to the Bible. Remember that in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. And he, what else does he say? I am the truth. Then he also says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says this, that it is God who gives wisdom because he is the source of all truth. Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Daniel 2.20 says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. We find it also in Colossians where it says that God and our Father and Christ in him are hidden all treasures of wisdom. They all are hidden in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, one of my favorite verses says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. Christ is literally the word of God lived out. The word of God lived out. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You find also in Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Wisdom comes directly from God through his word to us. If you want to have the mind of God and the mind of Christ and the mind of wisdom, you have to have the word of God in you. So in answer to the question, who is wise and understanding? Well, really, the answer to the question is Christians. Christians are the ones who are wise and Christians are the ones who are understanding. But we need to add one little footnote to that. And that is this. You can be a Christian and have all the access to all the wisdom, but you may not be applying it. In other words, you can have a lot of biblical facts, right? You realize you can memorize the entire Bible and not have wisdom? You can have every verse committed to memory? You can understand and know all of the systematic theologies and not have biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom is the application of what the Word of God says, and those Christians that don't have that don't have biblical wisdom are the ones who are not living out practically what God's word says. So we are the ones who have that. We are the ones who live it and understand it and we have access to it because we have access to God and Christ and his word. But a couple of warnings here that I need to help you with. And these are more theological and you'll just uh, work your way through them with me if you don't mind. There are some dangers that you can fall into when you think about biblical wisdom and biblical knowledge. And the first one is this. You can have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. What do I mean by that? The word orthodoxy means right doctrine or right belief. The word orthopraxy means right practice. In other words, you can have all the right beliefs but have wrong behavior. You can have all the right doctrine but not necessarily be working and disciplining yourself to apply those things to your life. And you can have an emphasis like we do here at this church of being very precise in our doctrine, very careful with our exposition, and still not necessarily have biblical wisdom applied in your life. 
And there's a danger in churches that are heavy on their doctrine and heavy on their belief and heavy on their exposition to miss the importance of applying those things to our daily life and making sure they understand what God's word says is not only just what he says, but what we are expected to do and to apply. There's another danger, not only orthodoxy without orthopraxy, but also orthopraxy without orthodoxy. In other words, you can have a commitment to live what is right and to do what is right, but not have the right doctrine or not have the right understanding of truth. And that's a difficult area, too. We have a lot of that today where we have a lot of people committed to trying to do what is right, but they don't have the foundation of the doctrines behind them or the teachings of Scripture behind them. This is what I call the WWJD movement, where it's all about what would Jesus do? Well, you need to know a little bit more about Jesus to understand what would Jesus do. It's that kind of thinking. There's an emphasis more on practice rather than precision in doctrine. You don't have to be so careful about what you believe or why you believe it just so long as you do it, right? It's the idea or the mentality, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It's more than that. We need to be applying it, yes, but we need to understand the basic fundamentals of our doctrine and believe what the Word of God says and know why we believe what we believe. Those things are very important. Pragmatism, by the way, is spun, spun right out of this. The reason why we get all of the things we have today that we'll just do whatever works in the church, regardless of what we believe, is because of this approach. Practice is more important than what you believe. And doctrine is minimized and dumbed down and not seen as important. And the third danger that is a possibility is orthopraxy based on heterodoxy. And the idea of a commitment to right living but it's based on wrong teaching. Better probably would be heteropraxy based on heterodoxy, that is wrong living based on wrong doctrine. But there are those who attempt to live what is right. They really do. They try to live what is right, do what is right, honor God, but they have wrong doctrine as their foundation. We see that so, so much today, especially in the church culture. Someone misinterprets the word of God, and then they try to live according to that misinterpretation. You see, what you need to understand is like what John MacArthur said on one occasion. The word of God properly interpreted is the word of God. Just because you misinterpret it doesn't mean it's the word of God. If you say something God never said, that's not what God said. And whenever you misinterpret the Bible and then you apply those principles that you've misinterpreted to your life you can end up on the wrong path and not have biblical wisdom. Many theologians and preachers and even prominent evangelicals today are speaking errors of interpretation in the word of God and then applying them to the local church. This is exactly what we're seeing today with the revoice movement, the CRT and social justice in the churches. It is a misinterpretation of the basic fundamental doctrines in the word of God and scriptures and then they're applying it in the local ministries. It went wrong at the basic foundational doctrine of interpretation. That's where it went wrong. So in order to avoid those doctrines or those dangers, we need to spend the time necessary as believers in the Word of God, studying it accurately, handling it accurately, interpreting it correctly so that we have the right Word of God to apply in our lives. So who is wise and understanding? Well, it's you and me as long as. 
we rightly handle the Word of God and properly apply it in our lives. And we are the ones then that are wise and understanding. But let's move to the second point now, and it's also found in verse 13. Not only the singularity of wisdom, but the sense of wisdom. The sense of wisdom. And what I mean by sense is the perception of it. See, a lot of people believe that wisdom is just something that you believe or know. You know, that guy's very wise. Well, biblically speaking, wisdom is more than just what you know or what you may understand even. It's how you live. That's the biblical wisdom. Look at it in verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. In other words, James is saying to us, wisdom is not academic only. Wisdom is actually how you apply it in your life. It's the everyday application of Scripture to your life so that it shows in your good conduct. That's biblical wisdom. It's not the guy who can always quote the, the most important author or reason correctly in his mind necessarily. That's not the standard here. The standard is the man who understands Scripture and applies it in his life. Applies it. It's the sense of it or the perception of it or the evidence of it. Verse 13 says that this is done by good conduct. You show your wisdom by your conduct, how you live. Look at it again in verse 13. Let him show it. That's an actual command. It's an aorist imperative. James is demanding that we show our wisdom by our good conduct. And the word conduct here is an important word too. It needs to be understood It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to our mode of life or our behavior or our mode of living or our manner of living as far as that is concerned. It's used this way in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct, Paul says, in Judaism, his manner of life, the way he lived, the way he applied truth in his life or even error. Ephesians 4.22 says that you put off concerning the former conduct of the old man, the way you used to live, the way you lived out what you believed in your life before you were saved. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, But he who, is, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct or your manner of life or your daily living. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, that is their manner of life, how they live daily. And James has in mind that all of your daily activities, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say, how you react, how you act, is all a part of biblical wisdom, your conduct. The word good is an important word to understand, too. It's the word kalos in the Greek. It means beautiful in character. It's the idea of someone that is attractive by their lifestyle. They live a beautiful, godly life that honors the Lord, and they have good conduct. So verse 13, he commands us to show that, not to show it by your academics, not to show it by your book knowledge, not to show it because you just have biblical knowledge. But to show it because you are living out what God expects you to live out. If you're biblically wise, then you are going to be one who shows it by your good conduct. He says you do it in verse 13 through your works or your deeds. We've already seen that already, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. 
If you want to show genuine, true faith, saving faith, then it's shown by your conduct or your works or your deeds of obedience to Christ. And so it is here in verse 13. If we're going to show biblical wisdom, then we let it be shown by our works, what we do, how we follow Christ. As one author said, it is that attitude of heart that produces gentleness and meekness and mildness in dealing with others. These works are done in verse 13 in meekness. Now today, meekness is one of those things that a lot of people don't have any desire for because a lot of people believe meekness is weakness, and it's not weak at all. I mean, meekness is, as one has defined it, power under control. Moses was considered a meek person, yet he had the authority over the people of Israel and was commanded by God to have the leadership over the people of Israel. Jesus was also considered a meek and humble person. And this word translated here, meek, paltes, is the word. It has more to do with more the, more to do with just inward attitude than outward behavior. The outward behavior would become manifest because you have the inward attitude correctly. And as one author also pointed, and I think it's important to note this, this humility or weakness or gentleness, as it is defined in other portions of the Word of God, actually has to do with your understanding of God and who He is in your life. This meekness is created because you have a proper understanding of who God is, you have a proper understanding of who man is, therefore you are truly meek, truly gentle, truly humble. Notice he does not say that we are to conduct our works here and have our good conduct in arrogance or pride or self-promotion or any of those things. It's all about understanding that you are under the hand of a sovereign God and that you are indeed who you are because of who Christ is and that you have nothing to offer at all other than your sin and all that you are is because of what Christ has done for you. And it creates an attitude of humility and meekness and gentleness. You're not going to be going around trying to correct everybody else's problems because you know you have your own to deal with. You're not going to be trying to uh, be arrogant and prideful and self-asserting because you understand that you are saved by the grace and mercy of an almighty God. So if you have biblical wisdom, you're going to live the way Christ lived. And the way he lived was as a meek and humble and gentle person. The truly wise person is a humble person. It's not promoted in our culture as so. In our culture, if you're going to be one who's successful, then you have to be the person who is self-asserting and prideful and arrogant and self-promoting. But according to the Bible, a truly wise person understands his place under the hand of a truly sovereign and powerful God. And gentleness is another way to translate that word, being gentle. Gentle with those around you. As one author said, it's never bitter or malicious or self-seeking or self-promoting or arrogant or vengeful. James has earlier admonished believers. Therefore, he says in verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness in humility, which is the same Greek word, or gentleness, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We do it all with an attitude of humility. An attitude of gentleness. You realize that that's one of the characterizations in the Bible in Matthew chapter 5 of those who have part in the kingdom of God. You remember the term that Jesus gave? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the same word. The idea is blessed are the humble, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the ones who 
are truly humble under the hand of Almighty God. They are the ones who inherit the earth. Not the prideful, not the self-asserting, not the arrogant, not those. Jesus said himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is the most powerful person in the universe. He's God. Yet he comes as a gentle, humble person here, power under control, and able to show his gentleness. In his excellent 19th century commentator on James, Robert Johnstone wrote these words, and I think they were good for us to close with today, and these words are these. I do not know that at any point the opposition between the spirit of the world and the spirit of Christ is more marked, more obviously diametrical, than regard to the feature of this character of meekness or gentleness. That the meek should inherit the earth, they would bear wrongs and exemplify that love which seeketh not her own, to a world which believes in high-handedness and self-assertion and pushing the weakest to the wall, a statement like this of our Lord from heaven cannot but appear a paradox. The man of the world desires to be counted anything but meek or poor in spirit and would deem such a description of him as equivalent to a charge of unmanliness. Ah, brethren, This is because we have taken Satan's conception of manliness instead of God's. One man has been shown to us by God in whom his ideal of man was embodied. And he was Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He, for the one who was nailed to the cross, then prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The world's spirit of wrath, then, must be folly, whilst the spirit of weakness, like his, in the midst of controversy, oppositions, trials, and whatever kind, there can be no sure evidence that Jesus has made to us the wisdom of God. And he's so true on that, so correct on that. Jesus is the greatest example of meekness and mildness and gentleness and humility. He lived it. He was wisdom embodied, embodied rather. We have that described for us here in this text. So the source of our wisdom is from God, no doubt, as we'll see next week. But the application of it comes, and how we live it is by applying the word of God in our life. Now, I said earlier in answer to the question, who is wise and understanding? Who is? We are, right? Only if we understand what God's word says, correctly interpreted, and apply it to our lives individually in our daily lives. Amen? Let's take a moment and close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you so much for this time together in your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you that the source of wisdom comes from you through your word. And as we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have the ability to apply these things to our lives. Lord, in the midst of a wicked culture that has abandoned truth altogether, I pray, Father, that we would be true lights in a dark world by the application of your word. I pray, Father, for that person here today who's never trusted Christ, who has never trusted the source of all wisdom, the one who has the truth of life. I pray, Father, that you would see that they, by your spirit, would be able to repent of their sin and to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Help us, Lord God, to know you better, to understand your word better, so that we can apply it daily. And show the world, by our good conduct, what true biblical wisdom is. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sandy.